The Great Evangelical Disaster. This blog is available as a podcast. Please check out firebrandnotes.com for more information. The theme of this blog article relates to my second book that is currently underway. If you'd like to support me in this in any way, please drop me an email. Quite often I struggle to pray, much like I suspect a soldier who struggles to sleep adequately in a sodden trench. The activity that I desire the most can routinely prove the most elusive. This is not coincidental. Satan constantly opposes the prayers of the righteous, perhaps especially the prayers of those who are sincerely earnest. But we must resist the devil and he will flee. Our Father knows our struggle perfectly. Yes, it is true that the glory to be revealed to us will infinitely dwarf any of our suffering now. It is also true that the daily life of a faithful Christian soldier is uniquely exhausting, discouraging, confusing and sometimes profoundly depressing. We are not of this world, though we are in it. We are aliens and foreigners looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Our home is not here, and neither is our citizenship. A man who understood this more than most is Francis Schaeffer, 1912 to 1984, who for all of us today is a voice from the grave, a grave that one day soon will be emptied of its bones. Schaeffer was born 12 years after the death of J.C. Ryle, who had no choice but to defrock his firstborn son from a position of leadership in the Church of England. Such was the tentacle reach of liberal theology even into his own family. There is no way that Ryle would remain within the Church of England today. He was too strong for that, too desirous of God. Spirit is always thicker than blood. To be sure, The Great Evangelical Disaster, Schaefer's final book published in 1985, shortly after his passing, is a prophetic foghorn that still reverberates today, one that had been resounding as a trumpet from Ryle one generation before. At the time of its publishing, I was five years old and learning to spell my name. Mary was yet to be born. I read Schaefer's warning to the church in just a couple of short hours, while my parched heart gulped deeply. What follows from me now is a brief series of thoughts that reflect the photographs of key excerpts of the book that I took with my iPhone as I read. Before I get into that, let me first read the foreword of Schaefer's book, written by his son-in-law, Ranald Macaulay. Which of us easily accepts criticism and condemnation? Do we not immediately leap to our own defence? For only two alternatives lie open to us when a prophet speaks. Either he is wrong, and hence we are justified in rejecting his message, in which case he must be a false prophet, or he is in fact right, and we must repent. Here lies the rub. To acknowledge a prophet is to admit the necessity of repentance. But will we repent? Will we in fact, as we read this book, Acknowledge a contemporary disaster in evangelicalism. Will we accept a change of direction and listen to what the prophet urges and then go his way? I say the conclusion is at best doubtful because repentance is never easy. 
how much easier to refute the prophet and continue the status quo for contemporary evangelical leaders as much as for Jewish experts in the law in Jesus' time. See Luke 7.30. But a prophet may be heeded. The message, though one of challenge and alarm, may be attended to. Repentance still stands as a real alternative with its invariable consequence that God in his mercy acknowledges the self-humbling of his people and lifts them up. And though it is necessary to speak of disaster, not all is bad within evangelicalism, nor did Schaefer think it was, nor, for the record, do I think it is. One suspects, in fact, that it is a minority only which endangers us, which is generally the case. Wedges are initially thin. Only when hammered down can they exert sufficient force to crack the whole log. Therefore, we must act resolutely and swiftly. We must seek to extract the wedge. We must deliberately oppose all those who, by their writings and teachings, threaten evangelicalism in its very identity and existence. In short, we must attend to Francis Schaeffer's prophetic call. Otherwise, the disaster he predicts will indeed engulf us all. Four decades on. Nearly four decades on from the publishing of the great evangelical disaster. I cannot say strongly enough how eerily correct Francis Schaeffer was, and yet at the same time how only partial his prophetic vision proves. I will return to this at the end. It is also the case that I have no idea how partial what I am about to write may be four more decades from now. What I want to say is that all of us have inherited the blinding mess that Ryle and Schaefer had forecast. Most Christians, and especially most Christian leaders, did not listen. If you are in that category reading now or listening now, you must repent. As with Schaefer and Ryle and many other good, godly men gifted with courage and radical vision, some people accuse me of being a false prophet. People who are unwilling or incapable of reading what I have written or listening to what I have said. Others say that I am a law unto myself, implying that I am not fit for church leadership or collaborating with because I am lacking in character. However, please pay heed. The time frame between these kind of prophetic books being written, for example, Clifford Hill's Towards the Dawn, written in 1980, and their time-proven legitimacy being recognised more widely, can be just like a wilderness wandering, i.e. four disobedient, dilly-dallying, arrogant decades of willful church unbelief. As a related reality that Ryle and Schaefer addressed decades ago, you can also read an email that I wrote to a false church leader earlier this week on firebrandnotes.com, imploring her to repent for the sake of her salvation, as well as every other harassed and helpless soul in her building. But as we will shortly see, this counterfeit spiritual leader is not necessarily any worse than the high-profile evangelical brother today, who evidently wants only to expel the immoral brother yours truly, because his conscience is conscripted away from what used to be known as the evangelical church. 
Because I, and many other fine fellows, refuse to compromise on biblical standards, matters pertaining to truth. Some brothers attempt to mark me as false, as loathing the church, as harming her, as being out of touch with the heart of God. As I will shortly show you, this blinkered blindness from some quarters of what is currently understood to be the church is diagnosed by Schaefer in extremely sobering terms. Holiness without love is neither one or the other, and the unsaved world have the right to question their salvation. The connection between Schaefer's 1985 book, Four Rebellious Decades in the Church Since, the letter to a false church leader in 2022, and Baptist celebrities today who think their articles in Crossway will save them, will hopefully become clear. Engulfed. Before I give you my main observations from Schaefer's book as a rubber stamping of its prophetic validity, please let me first draw your attention to the third to last word of Macaulay's foreword. Engulf. What is it to be engulfed? What does this word mean? Buildings engulfed by the ocean because of deteriorating climate change, or perhaps just a freak tsunami. Engulfed by a strong spiritual delusion sent by God. Engulfed by a species of spiritual pride and arrogance hidden by evangelical professionalism. Whatever, the thought of being engulfed by anything or anyone means being taken over, submerged, overwhelmed and ultimately ruined. The equivalent language that we have used to describe the chaos of the church, our corporate lostness in a denominational maze, can be seen via Firebrand Notes and the project Calling Yeshua. We are describing exactly the same problem as Ryle and Schaefer, just separated and worsened by more than 40 years. We have all been engulfed in the collapse and disintegration of evangelicalism. We have all been overwhelmed by spiritual unfaithfulness to the word of God. We have all been submerged in a spiritual climate so pervasively false that we literally cannot see the route forward. Which is why national repentance that disrupts and closes everything is the only way forward. Anything else is only delaying the inevitability of the sinking. But of course, we have sunk. We have been engulfed. As Melvin Tinker said, the West has been lost. Most of us cannot see the wood for the trees and yet still want to reject those who can. This is what Macaulay was meaning as he warned us about becoming engulfed. This is the reality that I write from now. We are not being engulfed or being lost. We are engulfed. The exact reason why fathers like Ashenden and Nizir Ali acquiesce to Catholicism. And it is acquiescence. Despite the protests. Noteworthy excerpts. Now to the photos of the book that I took as I read. I'll quote them and then briefly comment on each, culminating in a final quote that, dear reader, is extremely important for you to come to terms with. Quote one. 
What is the use of evangelicalism seeming to get larger and larger if sufficient numbers of those under the name evangelical no longer hold to that which makes evangelicalism evangelical? If this continues, we are not faithful to what the Bible claims for itself and we are not faithful to what Jesus Christ claims for the scriptures. But also, let us never forget, if this continues, we and our children will not be ready for difficult days ahead. The Great Evangelical Disaster, page 64. Evangelical professionals are infatuated with numbers and allow them to paper over the colossal cracks of our abject failings to simply believe and obey practically the word of God. We have inherited an engulfing capitulation and have passed on the same to our children. Quote number two. Some said, this is not the moment to come out, but we will do if such and such occurs. These in principle did not accept the concept of a pluralistic church. Some developed their own kind of hardness. A decision to stay in no matter what happened. Page 78. We generally refuse to think, pray and listen radically enough to conceive of a new way forward. We love the cop-out. We love church buildings more than God which is why the unfaithfulness towards him doesn't cut our hearts as it should. Some believers will remain within compromised churches until the day they die. Quote number three. I do not believe, however, that those who made the choice to stay in, no matter what happens, can escape latitudinarian mentality. They will struggle to paper over the difference regarding scripture so as to keep an external veneer of evangelical unity, when indeed today there is no unity at that crucial point of scripture. Page 78. Latitudinarian mentality, meaning accommodating compromise concerning the authority of the Bible, as demonstrated perhaps preeminently by evangelical majority silence about the ongoing evil of abortion. Quote number four, if we are to talk truth at all, we must have content on the basis of antithesis. And to do this, we must have discipline with regard to those who depart from the historic Christian faith. Page 82. Church discipline today is one, not super cool enough for church leaders who should be exercising it, and two, misunderstood by those who do. We either have a neglect of the word of God or else a total abuse of it, i.e. liberalism or legalistic pride scuppering the kingdom of God. Quote number five. For it was the failure of evangelicals 50 years ago to practice discipline and main control of the denominational centres of influence in colleges and seminaries, in publishing and in the organisational structures which allowed the liberals to take control. Page 89. Our evangelical fathers in the past, primarily in the churches but also in wider society, have badly dropped the ball and didn't bother to pick it up again for the sons who would flounder on their coattails. Quote number six. The matter of human life is a good case in point. I'm personally against abortion, but with any number of qualifications then added, 
This becomes the mediating phrase, not only of Christians in government, but also of many in the pulpit and in publications as well. Page 101. Our evangelical fathers lack the courage in the face of ramping evil so that now the sons do not even see the evil, let alone feel it. Quote number seven. I have dwelt at length on this because it is an absolutely crucial point. To deny the truth of what it means to be male and female as taught in the scriptures is to deny something essential about the nature of man and about the character of God in relationship with man. But this denial has equally tragic consequences for society and human life. If we accept the idea of equality without distinction, we logically must accept the ideas of abortion and homosexuality. Page 136. Schaefer understood that the exact danger of liberal biblical theology was as much relating to church leadership and governance as it was the biology of our children. Today, Elim or vineyard churches are just two examples, want female elders, but disagree notionally with abortion and transgenderism. However, they cannot have their cake and eat it. But the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ very much is having your cake and eating it. We settle for a very poor religion indeed. Quote number eight. We must give a practical demonstration of love in the midst of the differences. But at the same time, God's truth and the work of Christ's church both insist that truth demands loving confrontation. But confrontation. The differences are already there in the evangelical world. And trying to cover them over is neither faithfulness to truth nor faithfulness to love. There are three possible positions. One, unloving confrontation. Two, no confrontation. Or three, loving confrontation. Only the third is biblical. Page 143. The Mark of the Christian. Schaefer then includes an appendix at the end of the book, which, as far as I can tell, is an excerpt from one of his other books. Under the title The Mark of the Christian, Schaefer concludes this prophetic warning and clarion call to the radicals he is addressing by emphasising the most elementary part of what it means to be in Christ, namely, that the love with which each of us loves one another as brothers and sisters in Christ is intended to act as a signpost for the unsaved world. A signpost to what? To whom? To God. Soberingly, and he very much means to sober, Schaefer rightly argues from Jesus' words in John 13 and 17 that unbelievers have the right to challenge a Christian salvation if they do not love their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. This is how important this moral imperative is both to confront and to confront lovingly. Which brings me to the conclusion of this piece today. Schaefer's warning to the evangelical church was generally rejected, as most prophetic warnings are. And yet it is still valuable today, such is the mercy of God. But the passage of time since Schaefer, not to mention Ryle, is not without consequence, and eternally so. 
Our father's willful disregard for the palpably obvious, the horrors of abortion since 1967, means that there has been a compounding of the problem. It wasn't the job of Ryle or Schaefer to write about this. Returning to the beginning and Macaulay's use of the word engulf, think of the layers of silt that build up on a shipwreck or a sunken submarine, engulfed by the sea and the decades of concealment that pass. Is the ship not permanently altered? Is that which was once salvageable always salvageable henceforward? No. And this is where, in my opinion, Schaefer and Ryle couldn't see beyond the boundaries and span of their God-ordained lives. See Act 17.26. What didn't they see? Humbly, I would submit that they didn't see that it was denominationalism that was and is at the root of this evangelical disintegration and capitulation to liberal theology. The hole in the bow, the ingress of water. This is why I believe that a high-profile, quote-unquote, reformed Baptist pastor and professor today can be as wide of the mark of biblical truth as those who brazenly espouse liberal theology. His unloving contempt for a brother in Christ because of a failure to conform to the biblical standard of church membership highlights the very fault line of the curious form of Christian faith that he resolutely defends. This is not incidental. According to Schaefer, and I think according to the Bible, it is everything. Why? Because blinkered Baptists, or any churchman governed more by the constitutions of men than the Bible they espouse, are not seeing the kingdom of God, the heart of Christ, in the midst of their entrenched denominational conditioning. When a brother overlooks the longing of another brother for the return of Christ because he is not able to attend a local church, because he is engulfed in the utter demise of evangelicalism, labelling it dangerous and unteachable, rather than seeing it as a circumstance of modern-day persecution. We are seeing that the fall of evangelicalism is less to do with a core set of doctrinal beliefs, and it is at the very least that, but it is more fundamentally an idolatrous penchant with the church above Christ himself. The evangelical idolatry of the local church, seen perhaps most by the likes of Crossway's conveyor belt of stunted church writings and reformed celebrities, means that pastors today would rather we were all in compromised congregations rather than pioneering a new way forward. Ironically, this is against the very bread and butter of their, our, 16th century reformation. But they cannot see it. Crossway cannot see it. Good professors of eschatology, etc. cannot see it. Hence, I believe that Schaefer et al. saw some of the terrible roots of the great evangelical disaster that still need uprooting today but not the most intimidating and most rotten root of all, i.e. our ecumenical unwillingness to face the idol, that is, our splintered denominations. Multiple fronts. There's a quote from page 150 of Schaefer's book. 
The devil never gives us the luxury of fighting on only one front, and this will always be the case. Hence today, those radicals that Schaefer and Ryle and Tinker were thinking of on their deathbeds need to understand this. To be faithful to the heart of Christ, and therefore the Bible today, you will need to fight as a radical Christian soldier on multiple fronts, including not only progressive charlatans and counterfeits who falsely claim love for God, but also against those who are genuinely fathers and brothers in the evangelical faith, but who are dangerously bent on rejecting, in horrendous pride and stupidity, the very prophetic foghorn that they need to hear. We must prepare. We are engulfed. Christ is coming. Father, God in heaven, what can we think? What can we say? How can we pray? Apart from the... We pray that you would arise and we would dare to say that it's time for you to act because your law is being broken. We pray, Lord, that where there are multiple fronts on which to fight, and where there's limited energy, limited wisdom. I pray that you would do something wonderful by your spirit. Something so wonderful that we wouldn't believe it even if you told us in advance that that's what you were going to do. I pray that that truth of Habakkuk would be the truth in your bride and your body on the earth. In our days pray that every rotten root that needs to be uprooted in order to make the way for the pleasant plantings of the Lord would be uprooted. And I pray that you would work by your spirit in men and women and even in children. That there would be a true rising of radical Christians, true disciples, faithful Christ followers that would do just that. Put the hand to the plough, not looking back, and uproot those things that must be uprooted. Pray especially for those who don't know you, who are not eternally safe, those who are not in Christ. I pray for that church in Edinburgh. I pray for that church leader. Pray for those people who manifestly do not know you. Pray that you would arrest their hearts, disrupt their idolatry, their deception, the work of the enemy. Please break in like a blinding light that brings people to their knees. I pray too for the pride and the arrogance in the evangelical world, especially in reformed camps that think they know it all, that think they've got every <sighs> detail sorted out in their heads and yet manifesting not even producing the most basic fruit of what it means to be a Christian. I pray that there would be in our days the blending of both holiness and love so as to see the church prepared for the return of you, Jesus. And we pray that you would come soon and that as you come, before you come, your church will truly be prepared as a bride, ready to be presented in splendour to you at the end of the age. We pray in the name of Jesus, Maranatha and Father, please be glorified in all that we say, we think and we do. Have your way, we pray. Amen. <laughs>